الله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له اشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله Verily the praise belongs to Allah, we praise Him, seek His assistance and forgiveness, and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our deeds. Whenever Allah guides, there is no one that can lead him astray, and whomever Allah leads astray, there is no one that can guide him. I bear witness that nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah alone, and that He has no partners. And I bear witness that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his slave servant and his messenger. Bismillah ta'ala. We would like to begin our discussion this evening in the second of our series of lectures uh, concerning the fiqh of hadith. And we are reading from the book Taysir Al-Allam Sharh Umdat Al-Ahkam And that book as we mentioned last week contains those hadith which are agreed upon by Al-Bukhari and Muslim or one of them either Al-Bukhari or Muslim that is all of the hadith in this book come from either Sahih al-Bukhari or Sahih Muslim or can be found in both of them together. And the author has attempted to explain those hadith briefly as well as explaining some of the difficult words that are found in it. And as well he has mentioned some of the differences of opinion amongst the scholars concerning the ahkam or the rules or regulations that may be derived from these hadith. And finally he mentions yani in summary what we are able to derive of guidance, principles, rules or regulations or laws from these hadith, after each hadith he summarizes it. So we uh, covered in the last meeting, we took the first three hadith, the first of them, the hadith of Umar ibn al-Khattab, the famous hadith that is recorded in al-Bukhari and Muslim, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ Verily actions are judged according to intentions. And that hadith, as we said, is a very important hadith. And its importance in our study here is that whatever we are studying, we should make sure our intention is to learn for the sake of Allah. And also, whatever rules and regulations or practices that we are able to learn that came from the authentic hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, when we practice those things, it's not sufficient just to do them properly, but also we should be reminded that our intention in doing them should be purely for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because as we said so many times, every deed has two conditions in order for it to be accepted. The first of them is that it should be done purely for Allah alone, ikhlas or sincerity of the intention. And the second of them is that it should be in accordance with the way of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So we are studying now in order to learn how did the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam do these things, acts of worship and otherwise. And we are just being reminded that we should make sure that when we are doing them properly, it is also a necessity 
that we must do them purely for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second hadith that we took was the hadith of Abu Hurair radiallahu anhu in which he mentioned the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said لا يقبل الله صلاة أحدكم إذا أحتفى حتى يتوضع that Allah doesn't accept the prayer of any one of you if he has invalidated his state of purification until he makes wudu or until he purifies himself and we said in that hadith there are four main principles derived the first of them is that the salat of the person who has invalidated his state of purification is not accepted until he purifies himself from both types of impurity al-hadath al-akbar and al-hadath al-asghar the major state of impurity as well as the minor state of impurity the major state of impurity being such as when a woman uh, is com- completing her state of menses or after her husband or wife with their partner and so on this is major state of impurity and minor state of impurity is when a person uh, uses the bathroom to urinate, defecate or pass wind or, or other such things and these are minor state of impurity we also said that from this hadith it became known to us and it is clear that anything that invalidates the state of purity it invalidates the wudu and if a person is performing salat at that time it also invalidates or nullifies the salat completely and that person should go and remove their state of purification and from anew, from the beginning. Third, uh, the Shaykh said that the meaning of in this hadith where the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah doesn't accept the salat of one of you who has invalidated his state of purification until he makes wudu, it means two things, that it means that the salat itself is invalid and it also means that even if the person performed that salat, he doesn't get any credit for it. And we explained uh, the difference between these two points in more detail in the last lecture. And finally he said that this hadith indicates that the state of tahara or purification is a major or a fundamental condition, precondition for the acceptability of the salat. Yani the person who's not in a state of purification, then no matter how he performs the salat, it's not accepted. The third hadith that we took is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As radiallahu anhuma may Allah be pleased with him and his father and it was also reported by Abu Hurairah and Aisha radiallahu anhum ajma'in in which they reported that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said وَيْلٌ لِلْعَقَابِ مِنَ النَّارِ Woe to the heels from the fire and uh, such hadith as these hadith which we have mentioned short hadith and hadith of such importance we should if we are able attempt to memorize some of them if not in the Arabic language, at least the meaning in English language, so that we can uh, retain them for future reference and also we can pass them on to others. In this hadith, uh, we said that, uh, the Shaykh said, we derive from this hadith the obligation of giving attention to every part of the body that should be washed in wudu. And also that there is a very severe threat that the Prophet ﷺ has mentioned in this hadith for the one who doesn't perform his wudu properly and he leaves something undone in the wudu Wail, we said in that last discussion that it means the threat of punishment or destruction and some of the scholars said that Wail is a valley in the hellfire so the Prophet ﷺ said Wail, Wailun lil'aqabi min al-nar that is destruction or punishment or the valley in paradise would be for those who leave their heels undone or any other part part of the parts of wudu uh, in the fire it would be in the fire and finally uh, he mentioned that it is obligatory to wash the feet in wudu to wash them and he mentioned that this is something that was agreed upon by consensus by the Muslim scholars and only 
the only uh, those who differed were the Shia who said uh, because of their misunderstanding of the hadith of the ayah of the Quran um, they misunderstood and they remained on their yani, position of ignorance stubbornly even though the hadith the sayings and the practice and the instructions of the Prophet ﷺ make it clear that it is obligatory to wash the feet in wudu but they said no, it is sufficient to wipe it because they understood from the ayah of the Qur'an that when Allah said وَمْسَحُوا بِرُؤُوسِكُمْ وَأَرْجُولَكُمْ they read it وَمْسِحُوا بِرُؤُوسِكُمْ وَأَرْجُولِكُمْ and wipe your heads and your feet but actually the meaning of the ayah is وَمْسِحُوا بِرُؤُوسِكُمْ wipe your heads وَأَرْجُولَكُمْ and wash your feet, which is connected to the previous part of the ayah, wujuhakum wa aidiyakum, your faces and your hands. In any case, we discussed it in detail last week. Inshallah, I hope that it was clear. The next hadith that we came to in the book is hadith number four. It is reported uh, on the authority of Abu Huraira, radiallahu anhu. But before going to that hadith, uh, please allow me to just make some brief comments on something that is very important. Uh, which we didn't discuss in our introduction to the first lecture and it is the fundamental and very very important essential uh, terminologies that are necessary uh, in order for us to do a proper study of fiqh and these terminologies which we have uh, called here legal categories of responsibility they are well known to most of us, but we just want to be clear that the technical and proper, complete definitions are understood so that when we go through our studies of fiqh, that we will be understanding when we use such terminology so that it's not necessary to keep repeating the definitions, but we will just use the, uh, the legal terminologies in the Arabic language. The first of them, of the five legal categories of responsibility, are, uh, and they are known as al-ahkam al-shara'iyya al-taklifiyya. And there's actually a mistake in, the, uh, in this printout. It has taklib uh, fiya. It should be taklifiya. Just add a dot to the ba and it will be taklifiya. The first of them is al-wajib. Al-wajib. And sometimes it is mentioned as al-fard. Linguistically it means that which is mandatory or necessary. And technically it means, in mustaraha, it means that which the legislator, that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that which the legislator has ordered to be done. And this also includes the orders of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who orders us or prohibits us by revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That which the legislator has ordered to be done, and it is mandatory, like the five daily prayers, the five obligatory prayers, and like the fast of Ramadan, etc., Al-wajib is also known as fard, fariba, hatim, and lazim. These are other terms that you might come across, all meaning basically the same thing. It is very important to note here that the one who performs this act, the act of something that is wajib, the one who performs this act is rewarded for obedience and deserves punishment if not fulfilled. There is also another mistake here, please forgive me, because... uh, this was just printed just before we came here. I was rushing on my way here. Uh, if not fulfilled, the one who performs this act is rewarded for obedience and deserves punishment if not fulfilled. That means that the one who does the act which is obligatory, which is wajib, 
that person should be rewarded for doing it and they deserve to be punished if they don't do it. This is very important to understand. Some of the scholars said in the books of Usul al-Fiqh that the one who does the act which is wajib is rewarded and if he doesn't do it he is punished. But the proper definition or the proper thing to say is that the one who does it is rewarded for his obedience and the one who does not do that which is wajib deserves punishment. Deserves it. But Allah may punish them if he wills or he may forgive them. We cannot say that whoever doesn't perform a wajib that he will be punished. But we can say he deserves to be punished. It is right that he should be punished, but Allah forgives whomever he wills except shirk. So this is a very important condition here to note, deserves punishment. The next of those categories is al-mandub. And al-wajib and mandub should be always considered close to one another, just as the last two categories, al-makru and, uh, and the next two categories, al-makru and al-muharram, should be also ca- classified or considered together. Al-Mandub linguistically means that to which one is invited or encouraged to do. And technically, that which the legislator has commanded or ordered to be done, but not being absolutely mandatory. Yeah, I mean, Mandub is also something that we have been ordered to do, just like Wajib. But the difference is that the Wajib, it is mandatory to fulfill it, whereas the Mandub, we are ordered to do it, but it is not absolutely mandatory. And this, an example of this are the prayers, the rawatib, which accompany the five daily prayers, the five obligatory prayers, those prayers which we pray before it or after it. We are ordered to do them, we should do them, but it's mandub. And if we did not do them, then here uh, it is, is where the difference is between mandub and wajib. The one who doesn't do something that is wajib, he deserves to be punished. Whereas the one who doesn't do something that is mandub uh, is not punished. It is these things which are known as mandub are also known as sunnah, masnoon, mustahab, and nafl. All of these are names that are also used for mandub. Sunnah, masnoon, mustahab, and nafl. The one who performs this act is rewarded for obedience. Whoever does something that's mandub or mustahab, they are rewarded for it, for obedience, but not punished for leaving it. They are not subject to be punished for leaving it. And these are general rules. The next category is Al-Muharram. Al-Muharram linguistically means that which is prohibited. That which is prohibited. Technically, it means that which the legislator has prohibited or forbidden. And it being mandatory to avoid it. Allah has prohibited us such a thing and it is mandatory to avoid it. Such as disobedience to parents. It is haram. Engaging in riba, interest, consuming alcohol, etc. These are things that Allah has prohibited us from and the Prophet ﷺ has prohibited us and it is mandatory to avoid them. There is no leaving off some of it and doing some of it but you must leave it off completely. These things that are under the category of Muharram, they are also known as uh, Mahdur and they are also known as Mamnu'a. The one who avoids it is rewarded for obedience, for avoiding that which Allah has prohibited, and the one who commits it or falls into it deserves punishment. Again, notice the word deserves punishment as we use in wajib, the one who does it 
uh, or, or, or who doesn't do the thing that is wajib deserves punishment. And here the one who does that which is haram deserves punishment. But again, if someone does something haram and they don't repent from it and they die without repenting on the day of judgment, Allah may punish them out of his justice or he may forgive them out of his mercy and his bounty if he wills. So that person who does what is haram, he deserves punishment and Allah may do as he please. The next category which is close to Muharram is Al-Makruh, linguistically that which is hated or detestable and technically that which the legislator has prohibited or forbidden without it being absolutely mandatory. It should be without it instead of is, without it being absolutely mandatory to avoid it. Like taking something or offering it with the left hand. When you give anyone something you should give with your right hand. And when you take from anyone, you should take with your right hand. Giving with your left hand is makruh. And taking with your left hand is makruh. So the, the one who avoids this act, the one who avoids that which is makruh, is rewarded for avoiding it, but not punished for its commission. Okay, this is the difference between the haram and the makruh. The one who uh, commits that which is haram deserves the punishment deserves to be punished and the one who commits that which is makruh is for such an act though they are rewarded for avoiding it and finally the last category which is in between the previous four categories in between al-wajib wal-mandub and in between al-muharram wal-makruh on the other side is al-mubah linguistically that which is allowed or permitted and technically it means that which in and of itself does not have any command or prohibition related to it. That which does not have any command nor prohibition related to it directly. That thing in and of itself. Such as eating during the night in Ramadan. You are not ordered nor are you prohibited. It is mubah. And that which is mubah is also known as halal and jaiz. As long as it remains upon its status or its characteristic of being mubah, there is no punishment a reward connected to it. But, here, there is an important note. That which is mubah, in and of itself, does not have a command or prohibition connected to it. But if we find that this thing which is mubah is the means to something which is wajib or haram, then that mubah thing takes on the status of the thing that it is the means to. If something is the means leading to that which is wajib, then even though that thing in and of itself has no command upon it, but because it is the means to that which is wajib, it also becomes wajib. And likewise, if something is the means to that which is haram, though that thing in and of itself is not haram, but when it becomes the means to that which is haram, then it takes on the same ruling as that which it is the means to, and it also becomes haram. That's why we said here, as long as it remains upon its status of mubah, and not being the means to something wajib, nor being the means to something haram, then there's no punish or reward connected to it. But when it becomes the means to one of these things, then it takes on the same ruling. And an example of this, for example, we can say that it is not uh, obligatory in every case and in every condition, in every condition that a person should uh, cover their body completely, including their aura. And perhaps if someone is taking a shower, they are alone in their home taking a shower, then it's not necessary that they are wearing clothing. But, for example, 
when they go out in the public, then it is haram to uncover their private parts. So clothing becomes the means to avoiding the haram. Therefore, it becomes obligatory to wear clothing in order to avoid the haram or the opposite. If it is a necessity to wear clothing, for example, to go to Juma, then Juma is obligatory. So wearing the clothing comes under, for that particular occasion, it comes under the ruling of being obligatory. Because it is a necessary means in order to fulfill the Juma prayer, you have to put on clothing to go to Juma. So in that case, the clothing becomes obligatory. Although wearing the clothing or not wearing the clothing in general is not something that you are ordered or prohibited from, except in particular circumstances. Okay, these are the main uh, categories, the legal categories of responsibility, where we are held responsible to do something or to avoid something. And these terminologies, inshallah, we will be using them regularly. So it is important that we should examine them carefully, try to understand them, and uh, be clear on their meanings so that when we use them, we will not be making any confusion. If there are any questions about these categories, if there is any questions, please uh, ask us now. For the ladies, inshallah, you may uh, write a question on the paper. We'll answer it before we leave, inshallah. Uh, now, uh, now, is there any question? Okay, so the next hadith that we came to is the hadith, hadith number four, the hadith reported, uh, I'm sorry, not hadith number four, hadith number five. Hmm. Yeah, we didn't uh, mention hadith number four in our review. Let me just quickly mention hadith number four, which we covered last week. It is the hadith of Abu Huraira, رضي الله عنه, that the Messenger of Allah, صلى الله عليه وسلم, said, إذا توضع أحدكم فليجعل في أنفه ماء If any one of you makes wudu, then he must, فليجعل This lamb is lamb al-amr, it means that you must do it. فليجعل في أنفه ماء That means it's obligatory for the person making wudu to put water up into his nose. ثم ليستنفر Then he must also uh, blow that water out of his nose. That's the first part of the hadith. The second part of the hadith, وَمَنْ إِسْتَجْمَرَ فَالْيُوتِرَ And whoever uh, cleans himself after using the bathroom, urination or defecation, uh, and he doesn't use water, but he used stones or some solid matter, istijmar, then he should فَالْيُوتِرَ He must make an odd number. That is three or five or seven and so on. An odd number of stones or whatever he used to clean himself. The third part of the hadith, وَإِذَا اسْتَيْقَذَ أَحَدُكُمْ مِنْ نَوْمِهِ فَلْيَغْسِلْ يَدَيْهِ قَبْلَ أَنْ يُدْخِلَهُمَا فِي الْإِنَاءِ ثَلَاثًا And if any one of you wakes up from his sleep, then he must wash his hand before sticking it or sticking them into the water container that he makes wudu from. ثلاثًا, three times. He must wash his hands three times. When you wake up from sleep, you, should wa- you must wash your hands three times. فَإِنَّ أَحَدُكُمْ لَا يَدْرِي for no one knows where his hand has been during the sleep. And uh, from this hadith, we mentioned that uh, a few points from it, we understand the obligation of taking water into the nose and blowing it out, and also that the nose is part of the face in wudu. When Allah ordered the, in the Quran that we should wash our faces, then we understand from this hadith that included in the face is the nose. And also, the, that it is legislate, legislated that we should, uh, whoever makes istijmar, using stones to clean themselves from the bathroom, 
that they should use an odd number or of three or more. And if they clean themselves completely on an even number, such as using four or six or eight, then they should use one more to make it odd. And we also said that um, that in this hadith, we came to know that it is legislated that a person should wash their hands when awakening from sleep. And there was difference of opinion. Does that sleep include any sleep from day or night? And we discussed that in detail. Finally, uh, from this, also we understand the obligation of making wudu when waking from the sleep. That when a person wakes up from sleep, before they can form, perform any act of worship that requires uh, to be in a state of purification, then they must make wudu. And also the prohibition of sticking one hand in the water container that you make wudu from. Uh, either it is tahrim prohibited absolutely, or al-kirahiyah, that is, that it is makru, or something that is detestable, or undesirable, and there's difference of opinion about its condition. Is it absolutely haram or is it detestable? Also he said that from this hadith, the apparent meaning of the hadith is that the reason for washing the hands when awakening from the sleep is for cleanliness. And that's what uh, he mentioned basically on that hadith. The next hadith, hadith number five, is the hadith of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. Anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqal, la yabulanna ahadukum fil ma'i abda'imi alladhi la yajri, thumma yagtasilu fihi. La yabulanna ahadukum fil ma'i abda'imi alladhi la yajri, thumma yagtasil minhu. Or in the narration of Bukhari, thumma yagtasil fihi. In another narration, Similar to this, that's reported by Imam Muslim, he said, "لا يغتسل أحدكم في الماء الدائم وهو جنوب." The first hadith in it, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam used the "la," which is "la nahiya," means that it is something that he has prohibited. "لا يبولن," that you absolutely must not urinate. No one of you should urinate in stagnant or still water. Not running water, like a running stream, but water that is still standing. No one should urinate in such water. And then he made it more clear what he meant. He said, yajri, The water that is not flowing. Minhu, and then take a ghusl from that water. No one should urinate in that water and then take a ghusl from it. Uh, in the hadith of Muslim, he said, لا يغتصل أحدكم في الماء الدائم وهو جنوب. No one of you should make a ghusl in the water that is still standing, stagnant water, وهو جنوب. While he is in a state of janaba, that is, he is in a state of major ritual impurity after having relations between husband and wife and so on. No one of you should take a ghusl in standing water while in that state of janaba. The Shaykh, he says in his brief explanation of this hadith that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam has prohibited anyone from urinating in standing or stagnant water which is not flowing, such as water that's in a container, in big water storage containers, or those which are in tankers, or those places out in the desert, out in the field, where there might be any... I don't know what to call it, a place in the land, in the earth, where it is lower than the level of the ground, such that when it rains, 
water may fill up that space. This kind of thing uh, is um, considered to be standing or stagnant or still water, and this water, uh, the Prophet ﷺ has prohibited that anyone should urinate in such water. Also, the drinking water holes where the people go to drink from or they take their animals to drink from, you should not urinate in such water because you would uh, make that water, you would uh, make it in a condition that would be hated or detestable to the people to use it for anything. Because such things as urinating in this water or, or such unclean matter, it would be the cause or the reason for the spreading of diseases and sicknesses and such things. Then he said, also the Prophet ﷺ prohibited anyone from taking a ghusl or a bath by emerging his body completely in still water or part of his body, a part of it in that water which is not flowing. The Prophet ﷺ prohibited such uh, so that that water would not become detestable for the use by the people or so it wouldn't be, be, be considered as filthy or unclean by the people but in fact what the person should do is take the water from that still water by hand scoop the water out to use on themselves if they have to take a ghusl uh, and if the person who wants to take a ghusl from such water is in a state of janaba or major ritual impurity then that prohibition is even more severe than the one who is not in a state of Janaba. Then he says, and if that water was flowing water, then there is no harm in taking a ghusl in that water, and there is no harm in urinating in that water, but it is better to avoid urinating in it, because there is no benefit in urinating in such water, even though it doesn't cause harm to the water, but there is no benefit in such so though it's permissible, it is يعني, better to avoid it so as not to, to avoid causing any harm to others. This hadith, there are two main points of ikhtilaf or difference of opinion amongst the scholars concerning these hadith. There are two main points. The first of them, the point of difference here, is whether or not this prohibition of urinating in stagnant or still water and then taking a ghusl in it is that prohibition for tahreem is it to mean that this thing is haram or is it to mean that this thing is makruh now we have already just discussed the differences between al-haram wal makruh so the scholars differed because we remember we said that which is haram is that which the legislator has prohibited and we said that which is makruh also is that which the legislator has prohibited. But we said the haram, it is prohibited and it is absolutely necessary to avoid it. Whereas the makruh, it is prohibited. We have been prohibited from it, but it's not absolutely necessary to avoid it. So the scholars said, we have been prohibited here. But is the prohibition meaning that it's haram absolutely to be avoided? Or is it makruh, something detestable or hated and it's not absolutely to be avoided? The first of the opinions of the scholars on this issue is the opinion of the scholars of the Malikiya Madhab, the scholars of the Madhab of Imam Malik, rahimahullah, and their opinion is that it is makruh. They said that it's not haram, but it's makruh. It's detestable. You should avoid it. But if you did such a thing, you would not be punished for it. 
The second opinion is the opinion of the Hanabila, the scholars of the Madhab of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And their opinion along with the Zahiriya, the opinion of those literalists, the Madhab of the literalists is that it is haram, absolutely haram, that it is absolutely prohibited. And if someone should urinate in such standing water, then it is something which, then they have fallen into that which is haram and they deserve to be punished. They deserve to be punished. The third opinion is the opinion of some of the scholars who said that uh, if that water is a small amount of water, qalil, then it's haram. Then this prohibition is for haram. And if it is a large amount of water, a great amount, then it's makruh. And Allah knows best. The important thing in these issues, the shaykh, uh, he says, the apparent, what appears to us from this hadith is that this prohibition is for haram, whether it is a small amount or a great amount. And uh, the important thing that we should keep in mind always, whatever opinion we agree with that the scholars have taken in such matters, if we are inclined to the opinion that it is makruh, still we should avoid it. It's something detestable. It's something hated. It's something that we have been prohibited from, even if it's not absolutely prohibited. Then it's better to avoid it. Whoever avoids it is rewarded for it. Though if they fall into it, they are not punished. But you are rewarded for avoiding it. So it's better to avoid it. And if it actually turned out that it was really haram, then the one who did it, not only uh, are they doing something that Allah has prohibited, is an act of disobedience, but they deserve to be punished for such. And Allah may punish them if they don't repent from it, or Allah may forgive them if He wills, but it's better to avoid ourselves to be in such position. So in such matters, there's a difference of opinion, is it haram or makruh? Then it is better to avoid it in any case. In any case, it is better to avoid it. At least, uh, even if it's only makruh, then we are rewarded for avoiding it, and Allah knows best. The second issue about which there is difference of opinion here, is the issue of whether or not uh, the water which someone has urinated in, does that water remain in its state of tahara, in a state of purity? Or does it become najif, unclean? When, the, when someone has urinated in this water, does it remain clean? Because the original state of water is that it's pure. But does it remain in that state, or does it become unclean from someone urinating in it? There are two parts of this issue that we should look at. The first of them is whether or not that water which has been urinated in changes its condition. The, the, the scholars agreed that if the condition of that water changes, that is, its color or its taste or its smell from someone urinating in it, then in that case it has become najis. And this is by ijma or consensus of the scholars, no matter if it's a small amount of water or a great amount of water. If it changes its condition, either its color or its taste or its smell, then in that case, the water that has been urinated in, it loses its state of purity and it becomes unclean. The second side of this issue is in the case that it doesn't change its condition. The same question, does it remain pure or become impure when someone urinates in it? They said, if it doesn't change its condition, then there are also, uh, there's a difference of opinion about this. If its condition changes, it doesn't remain pure. But if it doesn't change, then there's difference of opinion uh, about whether or not it remains uh, clean or unclean. 
here, for fear of becoming complicated, <laughs> may Allah help us, but the scholars differed here, if its condition was changed, its color, taste, or smell, and it is a large amount of water or a small amount of water, they also differed, depending on whether or not that water whose condition has not changed, it has not changed its condition, it didn't change its color, nor its taste, nor its smell, they differed based on whether or not it was a large amount of water or a small amount of water. If it's a large amount of water, uh, and it did not change its condition, by some uh, thing like urine or any major thing being in it, then as long as it did not change its condition, there's ijma of the scholars or consensus agreement that it remains pure, as long as its condition is not changed. In the case where its condition is not changed, but it's a small amount of water, the condition didn't change, its color did not change, its smell did not change, its taste did not change, but it's a small amount of water, then here's where they differed. And the first opinion of the scholars is the opinion of Abu Huraira and Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. And it's also the opinion of Al-Hasan al-Basri and Sa'id ibn Musayyib, Sufyan al-Thawri from amongst the Tabi'een and from amongst the scholars of the Madhabs of Fiqh, Dawood and Malik and from amongst the scholars of Hadith al-Bukhari. All of them held the opinion that it does not become najis if it doesn't change its condition, even if it's a small amount. But the other scholars said, even though it doesn't change its condition, if it's a small amount and anything najis entered into it, then it becomes unclean simply by something unclean coming into it, if it's a small amount of water. And this is the opinion of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah, may Allah be pleased with him and his father, and from amongst the tabi'een, mujahid, and from amongst the scholars of the madhahib, of the madhahib, the Hanafiya, the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa, the Shafi'iya, the madhab of Imam al-Shafi'i, and the Hanabila, the madhab of Imam Ahmed, all of them, rahimahullah, their madhab, is hold the opinion that if it's a small amount of water, even though it doesn't change its condition, it becomes unclean. Uh, in any case, the important thing here is to know that there is some difference of opinion about the condition of the water, and that difference of opinion is based on whether or not it changes its condition or not. If its condition changes, then it's agreed. If its condition does not change, then there's difference of opinion about it. And those who hold each of the opinions are people that are to be considered. We must respect and consider their opinions, and whichever opinion you might feel is closer to being correct, you may follow it. But we should also always keep in mind that those who hold the other opinion are from amongst Sahaba. They are from amongst the Tabi'een. They are amongst the Imams of the Madahib, the scholars of Hadith, and so many of our great scholars and learned people who were great in knowledge and also great in character. And they held such an opinion. So we have to respect the other opinion no matter what our opinion may be. Um, the Shaykh, he says uh, that the first opinion of their evidence, and those who said that it's najis, obviously their opinion is based on this hadith that the Prophet ﷺ prohibited a person from making ghusl in the water that someone has urinated in. 
Uh, and he also prohibited the person who was junub in a state of Janab from taking a bath in standing still water. So they, based on that, they understood that the water became unclean. The others, though, answered their opinion and also brought evidence such as the hadith that's reported in Abu Dawood and At-Tirmidhi and it is a Hassan hadith, a good hadith, which is acceptable as a proof in the Islamic law, the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in which he said, Al-ma'u tuhur la yunajjisuhu shay'un. That water, pure, absolute water, yani water that hasn't changed from its condition, it is pure and nothing makes it unclean. لا ينجسه شيء That includes urine, defecation or whatever does not make it unclean. This is their opinion based on this hadith. And they said that the prohibition of taking a ghusl in such water is for kiraha because it is something detestable, it's something uh, disliked. And the shaykh says that the truth of the matter or what he sees as being the most correct opinion or the strongest opinion is the opinion of the first group because uh, water doesn't become clean or unclean unless its condition is changed, no matter whether it's a small amount or a great amount. If its color changes or its taste changes or its smell changes, then it changes from its condition as being water. But otherwise, it remains on its state of pur- purity and we should uh, accept it as such. And this is also the opinion of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, uh, and other scholars. So finally, he says uh, from this hadith, in terms of the difference of opinion amongst the scholars, he said, from this we came to know that the strongest opinion, the rajih, is that the water which someone who is in a state of janaba has took a bath in, someone in a state of major ritual impurity, if they took a bath in that water, then that water remains pure, even if it's a small amount of water. And the sheikh mentions here, because he is... Uh, and he, he, he is following the madhab of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, rahimahullah. So he said, and this opinion, which he said here is the strongest opinion, is in contradiction to the opinion of his own madhab. The shaykh is saying, this is in contradiction to our madhab, but nonetheless, it is the stronger opinion. And this is the attitude that Muslims should take in issues of ikhtilaf, whatever madhab we may follow, that we have learned from our society, or our culture, or our families. If we find that the stronger evidence is in contradiction to our madhab, then we leave our madhab and follow the stronger evidence. So the shaykh, he says here in clear language, that the most correct opinion and the strongest opinion is that the water remains pure, even though this is in contradiction to what is well known from our madhab, meaning the madhab of Imam Ahmed, and it is also in contradiction to the madhab of Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah, who held that if a person uh, takes a ghusl in standing water, then it loses its state of impurity, as long as it's a small amount of water, then it's not clean anymore. Uh, then the Shaykh, he mentions, what, what are the yani, rulings or the benefits that we can derive from this hadith? Um, he says, first, number one, we understand from this hadith that it is prohibited to urinate in standing water. It is prohibited, and it is in his opinion, that prohibition means that it's haram, not makruh. And even more so from this, we can understand that it's also prohibited. If it's prohibited to urinate, then even more so, it is prohibited to defecate in such standing water. No matter if it's a small amount or a great amount, it's prohibited to do so. Secondly, he said, from this hadith, we are able to understand 
that it is prohibited to take a ghusl, to take a bath in standing water by emerging or immersing one's whole body in that water, especially in the case of the person who is in a state of major ritual impurity, even if he didn't urinate in it. They need to take a ghusl in standing water, and especially the one who is junub, uh, it is prohibited. And this is really clear in the second narration of this hadith, the one that we mentioned from Imam Muslim, in which the Prophet said, لا يغتصل أحدكم في الماء دام وهو جنوب that no one of you should take a ghusl in standing water while he is in a state of major ritual impurity. And that which is legislated in such a case, if you have to take a bath, is that you should scoop the water out by your hand and not emerge your body in the water. Also from this hadith, we can understand the opposite of what has been prohibited is that which is permissible, that is, it is permissible to take a bath and it is permissible to urinate in running water, although it is better to avoid urinating even in running water. And finally, he said uh, that from this hadith, generally we can understand the prohibition of anything that is harmful uh, or, or can do harm to others. We should avoid it in general. The next hadith, hadith number six, and that hadith is also contained in the paper that we gave out uh, last week. We numbered it number five because we didn't uh, mention here actions are judged according to intentions. But uh, the fifth hadith in the uh, study guide that we gave out last week, hadith number five, which is hadith number six in the book, is the hadith of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama qal idha shariba al-kalbu fi inai ahadikum falyaghfilhu taba'an if a dog drinks from the utensil or the container of any one of you falyaghfilhu taba'an then he must he must and here it is a command falyaghfilhu it is a command then he must wash it seven times if a dog drinks from the container of any one of you then he must wash it seven times and in the narration of Muslim he said wash it seven times the first time being with dirt from the surface of the earth and also, it is reported from Abu Hurair radiallahu anhu, and also from the hadith, I mean, uh, not from Abu Hurair, from Abdullah ibn Mughaffal al-Muzani radiallahu anhu, that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِذَا وَلَغَ الْكَلْبُ فِي الْإِنَاءِ فَغْسِلُوهُ سَبْعَ مَرَّاتٍ وَعَفْتِرُوهُ الثَّمَانِيَةَ فِي التراب. If a dog sticks his tongue in the utensil, then you must wash it seven times. وَعَفِّرُوهُ الثَّمَانِيَةَ فِتْرَابِ And he must uh, also uh, rub it with earth, with earth or dirt from the surface of the earth, making number eight. 
And this actually, this hadith requires a lengthy explanation. Uh, we will try to make it brief because there are many narrations, authentic reports of the Prophet ﷺ for this hadith in which he said, uh, wash it seven times, the first of them being with turab, wash it seven times, the last of them being with turab, wash it seven times, one of them being with turab. And in this one he said, وَثَمَانِيَةَ the eighth, as though there is the eighth time with turab. And uh, Imam Muslim, rahimahullah, in his Sharh al-Sahih Muslim, actually discussed in length these different expressions that came in the hadith. And uh, what I can say, yani, insha'Allah, uh, that the summary of what he said about this matter is that uh, these different narrations or different expressions that came in authentic hadith of the Prophet sallam show us that you might wash it with earth the first time or the last time or any one of those times. The important thing is that you have to use earth at least one of those times in washing that utensil which has been licked by a dog or he has stuck his tongue in the water or the yani, matter that's in that utensil. Uh, but once at least you should use uh, dirt from the surface of the earth. And uh, some of the scholars said that the best opinion about this is the first time so that when you use the dirt the first time after that the next uh, six times that you wash it to make seven would be with water. The dirt having some special quality for cleaning, some germs that particularly comes from the dog, and that in that soil there's something special that Allah has placed in it that has the ability to remove this that water or soap and other disinfectants cannot remove. In any case, uh, the Shaykh he says here, uh, the general meaning of the hadith is that since the dog is of those animals that are detestable, and considered to be يعني, unclean and that they carry so many uh, uh, unclean things and germs and spread disease then Allah Al-Hakim, the wise legislator has ordered that any container which the dog has stuck his tongue in it should be washed seven times and the Shaykh says the first of them, the first of those seven the water should be accompanied with uh, dirt from the surface of the earth so that the other times when it's washed يعني, the dirt would be followed by water so that you would have perfect يعني, cleanliness from the najasa or the impurities of the dog or the harm of his impurities and the shaykh mentions a number of points that can be derived from this hadith the first of them is the severity of the uncleanliness of the dog can be understood from this hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ ordered that when he stuck his tongue in the water or substance of anyone's container or drank from it then it should be washed seven times so from this we understand that the dog makes things unclean even though we might not see the uncleanliness of the dog even though it might not be apparent perhaps that dog may have just taken a bath or, or the owner of the dog may have just given it a bath and a shampoo and a haircut as some of the kuffar do to their dogs, they treat them better than human beings then the impurity, the uncleanliness of the dog might not be apparent but nonetheless, Allah who is all-knowing and all-wise He has ordered that the dog that drinks or licks from anyone's container after that, it should be washed seven times and in some narrations they said that whatever is in that container should be poured out and then washed and this is also authentically reported second he said that his picking his tongue in that container 
the same ruling that applies to that applies to whether if the dog eats from the container. Yeah, and he's not just licking, sticking his tongue in there, but if he eats from the container, it also becomes unclean. And that which is in the container or that which remains in it, after that dog has eaten from it or licked in it, that substance also becomes unclean. That means it should be discarded, it should be thrown away. Thirdly, the obligation of washing that which the dog has stuck his tongue in seven times. Because in this hadith, two reports came, إِذَا شَرِبَ الْكَلْبُ فِي إِنَاءِ أَحَدِكُمْ Shariba means to drink, and in the other narration, إِذَا وَلَغَ الْكَلْبُ فِي إِنَاءِ That means if he stuck his tongue in there, without necessarily drinking. In both cases, it's obligatory to wash that container seven times. And also, we understand, number four, the obligation of using a turab, the dirt from the surface of the earth, one time. Uh, and it is better that it be the first time so that the water may follow it. And the use of the dirt, which, is, which, was, which was pointed to in the hadith of Imam Muslim as the eighth time of washing, he said the use of the dirt is considered as, eight, as the eighth. Not necessarily that it should be done yeah, after washing seven times with water, but the fact that you use the dirt from the surface of the earth, it counts as number eight, along mixing it with the water, either the first time or any one of those times. You should put water in the container and then add to it soil or put soil in the container and then add to it water at the same time and wash it. Then after that you may wash it with just yani, pure water. And he said there's no difference here whether you put the water in first or put the sand in or the earth in first. No difference. Or whether you mix uh, soil with water and took that mud and put it in the container. All of it is the same. But the point is the water should be mixed with the soil. The washing with soil means soil mixed with water. Then the Shaykh, he says, it is the opinion of some of the people that whatever takes the place of soil, whatever you may use of those things that are used as cleansers, if you may use some type of cleanser or disinfectant or soap or whatever, he said that it is the opinion of some of the people that whatever you use in place of soil, then it takes the same ruling as soil. Because the intention here is for cleanliness. So if something else cleans the container, then it takes the same ruling as using soil. And he said this is the opinion of Imam Ahmed, and it is also one of the sayings of Imam Ashafi, uh, that something else may take the place of turab, and it falls under the same rule. It is one of the opinions of Imam Shafi, but that which is more famous from Imam Shafi is that he said it is necessary to use turab, not something in place of it. That's his most famous saying. And this saying has been supported by one of the great scholars of the Shafi'i Madhab, Al-Imam Ibn Diqiq Al-Aid, Rahimahullah, who is a great scholar of fiqh and a great scholar of hadith. And he said uh, that this is the correct opinion that soil has to be used because soil or turab has been mentioned in the text of the hadith. So we shouldn't avoid it or skip it and take something else. And also, another reason why it should be used and that nothing else can take its place is because it is one of the two major and fundamental basic sources of purity. One of them is al-ma, water, and the other one is al-turab, soil. As you know, a Muslim may purify himself 
by either using water or in the absence of water, they may make tayammum, using the soil from the surface of the earth. So these are the two basic sources of purification on the earth. Every place in the earth, and this is what Allah has allowed us to use to clean ourselves, to purify ourselves with water if it's available, and it is the original thing that we should use, and in the absence of water we, can, we may use turab. So Ibn Taqiq al-Eid said also for this reason, turab should be used and not something in its place. And also he said that the, this is a technical statement he says, and Allah knows best how to translate it. Uh, another reason is because al-ma'ana al-mustandata إِذَا عَادَ عَلَى النَّفْسِ And it appears as though the meaning of this statement is that the meaning which we can derive from the text, the meaning which we derive, secondary meaning which we derive from the text, that's not the obvious meaning of the wording, then, like here, for example, the obvious meaning of the wording, the text of the hadith is turab. But you might understand, you might derive from it, that you can use anything that cleans the uncleanliness. So that derived meaning, whenever it goes back to negate or contradict the original meaning that's mentioned in the text, if it contradicts the original meaning, then in that case, that derived meaning is rejected. So the meaning what he is trying to say here, and Allah knows best, it's easier to say in Arabic than in English, is that uh, sometimes we take the text of the Qur'an or a text of a hadith and we can understand a secondary meaning from it. As long as that secondary meaning doesn't negate the primary, obvious, literal meaning, then we may accept it. But if it negates the original, literal meaning, then it's rejected. And perhaps an example of this in Aqidah, which we were studying just a few weeks ago, is uh, the ayat in the Qur'an that mention the face of Allah. Wajhullah. Some people say that Wajhullah, it means Allah's pleasure. And it is possible that we might understand as a secondary meaning that we are seeking someone does something for the face of Allah we may understand that they are doing it for the pleasure of Allah but the primary meaning and the first literal meaning is that Allah has a face his face is not like the face of human beings or anything in the creation but Allah confirmed for himself and the Prophet confirmed that he has a face so we affirm that although we might understand as a secondary meaning doing something for the face of Allah it may also mean doing something for the pleasure of Allah. But as long as that secondary meaning doesn't negate the primary literal meaning, in the case that that secondary meaning negates the primary meaning, then the secondary meaning is rejected. And we have to go with the primary and the literal meaning. And Allah knows that. Uh, then uh, he also mentions about this point, uh, something being used in, in place of Qur'an, but Imam al-Nawwi, rahimahullah, he said that uh, cloth and rags and soap and other such things do not take the place of soil from the surface of the earth and this is the most correct opinion. Using anything else as tools or instruments of cleanliness do not take the place of using soil. Then the Shaykh adds, and uh, he closes this point on this, he says, it has now appeared to us or become known to us from some recent scientific research that that which is achieved by using soil from the surface of the earth to remove the uncleanliness from the dog is not achieved by anything else except soil from the surface of the earth. 
Yani, some scientists have now discovered that the effect that the soil has in removing those, that uncleanliness or those impurities is not achieved by using any other cleanser or any other type of thing that's used for cleaning. Then he said, if this is sahih, if this is correct, then it became clear to us that this is one of the miracles of the Islamic legislation, of the noble Islamic legislation. Because this is something that was known to the Prophet more than 1,400 years ago and only became known to the scientists in these recent times. And also in the hadith of Imam Muslim, where he said if a dog sticks his tongue in the container of one of you that you must wash it seven times, وَعَفِّرُوهُ ثَمَانِيَةَ بِالْتُرَابِ And clean it the eighth time with soil from the surface of the earth. He said that this word, عَفِّرُوهُ also supports those who said that the soil from the surface of the earth must be used. Because عَفِّرُوهُ, it literally means, linguistically, it means وَجْهُ turab. It means that which is on the surface of the earth, or the soil from the surface of the earth. So in that hadith, it makes it more clear that what should be used is soil from the surface of the earth, that which is on the face of the earth. Then uh, the last two points, the shaykh, he says, also we understand from this hadith, the greatness of this pure Islamic, these pure Islamic laws, the pure Islamic law. We understand the greatness of the Islamic Sharia, and that it was revealed من حكيم خبير from one who is wise and all-knowing or all-aware and that the one who has delivered this legislation sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the Messenger of Allah he doesn't speak from his own desires as Allah mentioned in the Quran but it is revelation that is revealed yani when he told the people this it could only have been by revelation it's clear that he wasn't saying this from his own feeling or his own idea or just imagination but it was revealed from the all-wise and the all-knowing. And also that some of the scholars, the Muslim scholars, had difficulty in understanding the wisdom of why the uncleanliness from the dog has to be washed so many times. When there are the other unclean animals, which are not mentioned, that when they lick or drink from your container, you should wash it seven times. Some of the scholars, even the Muslim scholars, had difficulty understanding the wisdom behind this. Uh, and why yani, the same such severity in attempting to clean it were not, was not yani, commanded for cleaning uh, after other animals. Even some of the scholars said that the manner of cleaning after the dog has licked anyone's container is something that is ta'abbudi. It is yani, purely worship. It's not meant to be understood by the intellect, but it is a form of worship. You just do it as a manner of worshipping Allah because Allah ordered you to do it. But it can't be understood. That's what they said. But now today it became understood. But some of them said we can't figure it out. So we just do it as a form of worship because Allah ordered us to do it and we do what Allah orders us to do. And we do it, يعني, even if we don't understand it, if we fulfill Allah's command, we expect that this is an act of worship and that we will be rewarded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then in these recent days, the scientists with their microscopes and other instruments of research have discovered uh, what has been mentioned and they have confirmed that the saliva of the dog contains certain microbes or certain kinds of harmful things that cause disease, dangerous diseases and that it is not removed by water alone.
Subhanallah, Subhanallah, the all-wise and the all-knowing uh, who has revealed this before the scientists had any idea about it. And finally, the Shaykh mentions, and we will close with this, that uh, the apparent meaning of this hadith is that it is general for all dogs. Yani that any dog who drinks from anyone's container or sticks his tongue in that container, uh, after that it has to be dumped out and it should be washed seven times, one of them with the soil from the surface of the earth. Uh, this is general for all dogs. As for those dogs which Allah has allowed, has given permission that they be used, such as the dogs that are used for hunting, or the dogs that are used for security or protection, or the dogs that are used for يعني, uh, managing the cattle, or the animals, the flock, or the sheep, or whatever. Some scholars said that it is not absolutely obligatory to wash after those dogs seven times. That might be difficult, because those dogs are being kept by the people. So it's difficult to protect their containers from such dogs. In any case, uh, the strongest opinion, and Allah knows best, is that the hadith is general, even though uh, there are some who said it's, it doesn't include those dogs which Allah has given permission that a person may keep them uh, for such things as hunting or security or for watching the animals and so on. And of course, those dogs which permission is given for, uh, it's not given permission to keep in the house, but to keep out of the house. But no one should keep a dog in his house uh, for any reason whatsoever, and Allah knows best. Subhanak Allahumma wa bihamdika, shadwan la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. We will stop here, and inshallah, in the next class, we will take the hadith concerning the description of the wudu of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the hadith of Uthman ibn Affan, radiallahu anhu, uh, in detail, and the rules and regulations concerning and relating to wudu. Uh, so please, if you may, read some hadith concerning such to prepare yourselves for the next lecture, the Ibnillah. And if there are any questions about what we discussed this evening, then you may uh, ask them now. Now. Can it be used? No. As a substitute? Can you use snow as a substitute for soil and water? Well, in general, uh, snow as well as ice falls under the same ruling as water because it is originally water but in a different condition and it is pure as the scholars have said that uh, the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he asked Allah to purify us from, uh, by using that water as well as ice as well as snow that means that all of these things of the, uh, yani are considered as water and they are pure you can use them you can use snow with soil you can use ice with soil but uh, yani as long as it's mixed with it it has to mix with it in order, because the soil should not be used alone in its normal condition, but it should be mixed with water. So if you take snow, uh, and it's not uh, completely frozen, you can mix it with soil and make it damp, you can use it inshallah. For wudu, oh, not soil. You mean just using snow for wudu. It's clean. But it depends on its condition, and Allah knows best. Uh, I don't know if you can use it in every condition, but if the snow is melting, as sometimes, depending on its temperature, and it actually can dissolve in your hands, then you can use it. It's pure. Naam. Any other question related to our topic this evening? Okay, in that case, let me just uh, remind the brothers and sisters that we hope, inshallah, although it may be a little difficult, 
that we should follow these uh, discussions in fiqh, the fiqh of hadith, by examining the hadith which we are taking carefully, reading them over and over to understand them properly and thoroughly. If whoever is able to memorize the hadith, even in English language, it's meaning this is very good. It is a good thing to do. Whoever can memorize it in Arabic, understanding its meaning in general, also this is very good. Uh, we want to train ourselves to memorize, to memorize from Quran and to remem- memorize from the authentic hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. We want to train ourselves. We shouldn't be lazy to rely solely on uh, our general memory, something like this or something like that, but we should try to memorize from the Qur'an, we have to memorize for our prayers and memorizing the Qur'an is an act of worship and memorizing the hadith helps us in understanding the religion uh, in guiding ourselves and advising others whoever is able to memorize from these hadith, especially the short ones like we took the hadith وَيْلٌ لِلْعَقَابِ مِنَ النَّارِ it's only three words, it can be memorized easily in five minutes we can memorize it and even the meaning of it is very simple such hadith as this we should try to memorize them in Arabic if possible with its meaning or if not at least in English because of course our meeting of discussion is basically in English when we talk to people we talk to them in English so it's important to know its meaning not to memorize it in Arabic without knowing its meaning but if you memorize it in Arabic it's better because then you can say the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said otherwise we should say the meaning of or close to, or something related to the meaning of what he said in English or in some other language. But we shouldn't say, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa said, uh, pray as you see me praying. He didn't say such. But he said something close to that in meaning. We can memorize the actual text though, if possible it's better. Sallu kama raitumuni usalli. Few words, we can memorize such hadith, which are very important basic hadith. So, I am advising and encouraging everyone from the brothers and the sisters, to take some of these hadith from memory if possible. The most important thing is to understand them. If you cannot memorize them, at least try to understand the meaning of the hadith so that you can repeat it properly, properly, and not add to it or take anything from it. That's essential. Otherwise, if you don't memorize it verbatim, word for word, and you, you mention it to someone in its general meaning, you should say that there is a hadith which has meaning similar to this. But don't say the Prophet ﷺ said it. And be careful what you attribute to the Messenger of Allah ﷺ because if you add to it or take from it, it is very severe. It is very dangerous. The Prophet ﷺ warned us from such people who lie on him. Intentionally or unintentionally. Naam. Inshallah. Okay. Uh, in any case, the hadith that we took first this evening, you can find it in Bukhari, the hadith of Abu Hurairah, that no one should urinate in stagnant water, which is not flowing. That can be found in Sahih al-Bukhari, volume 1, page 150, hadith number 239. And the second hadith can be found in al-Bukhari, volume 1, page 120. Hadith number 173. And that's found in the study sheet that we gave out last week. You can go back and find those hadith which we mentioned and other similarly related hadith. And inshallah what we'll try to do, Allah, yani if Allah makes it easy for us, may Allah make it easy for us to uh, at least, yani those hadith which 
yani we, we expect that perhaps they can be memorized the short ones we'll try to uh, type them in Arabic and English so that um, yani those who yani are encouraged and willing to try will try to memorize them inshallah inshallah I think they have called the then now so we should stop here and uh, if the sisters have any questions uh, you can send them over we will answer them as soon as possible today or next week or whenever bi'ithnillah subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika shadu an la ilaha ila anta fadfuruka wa tuwilik